0: If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter thirty-two, second book in the Old Testament, book of the Law of Moses, second book written by Moses. This morning we're starting a two-part series in the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus thirty-two, because uh, uh, chapter thirty-two in Exodus is really a pillar. Uh, in the life of Israel. If you think back a little bit earlier in the book of Exodus, you'll remember uh, that Exodus is all about the leaving uh, of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And uh, many scholars would say that uh, the, the Exodus from Egypt is uh, the greatest act of God's redemption, uh, redemptive work in the Old Testament. That even in the New Testament, you see people looking back to the Exodus out of Egypt, that God is is removing and is redeeming his people, uh, the people of Israel, out of Egypt as a way of of salvation, which is constantly used throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even the New Testament. One of the themes uh, that threads between the book of Exodus and Leviticus is the theme of ownership. Ownership. Because while God did this great redemptive work for his people to redeem them out of Egypt, out of captivity, into uh, the promised land, his people kept falling short uh, and of, of God's covenant, his oath to them. And so God would, would give his people a covenant, but they would continue to break it. And so Exodus 32 is a pillar that demonstrates the fall and the breaking of that covenant. But as the theme I just mentioned, the theme of ownership, the question that comes to my mind is for all of us to answer today, is who owns you? Who owns you? And I think a friend of us of ours here probably has an answer to that question. So I'm going to ask Colin um, a few questions. Colin Marvin, Colin, do you have a pet? Yeah. yeah? What's the name of that pet? Yeah. Skitter. What what kind of pet is Skitter? A cat. A cat. Good. Good. Um, Now, Skitter, your cat, does that cat obey your commands? Mm -hmm. Why? Because you own it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Colin, one last question. Who owns you? God. God owns you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I believe that's our answer for us today, is that God owns us. And we have to be reminded about that. So if Exodus 32 is anything... It's a reminder of our ownership. So again, if you have your Bibles open to Exodus 32, we well, talked about it's a, it's, it's a stake in the life of Israel. If you've ever had somebody survey your property, sometimes they'll put a stake in, right? And that stake is kind of a, a boundary marker of where your property stops and where uh, your neighbor's property begins, Right? Now, do you or I have the right to just go and pull that stake out and move it 20 feet to the left or 15 feet to the right, wherever we want it? No, and we'd probably get thrown in jail <laughs> or, or some, have some major uh, consequences because of that. But that stake is, is put there by the surveyor to demonstrate where is the boundary, where is the line. Exodus 32 is really, that, is really a stake. One way of looking at it is because it's put in the ground and it's a reminder... Uh, that Israel, uh, who is their owner and the ownership of Israel? It's not always who we think it is. Another way I'd like to look at Exodus 32 today is uh, the example of a forest. We don't have every time to to look over every single verse, and so we're going to touch on some of the primary verses within Exodus 32, as well as the greater narrative within Exodus. Uh, But we want to take a look at it from the perspective of a forest. And many of you, if you live in Hunlock Creek, at the edge of your grass, at the edge of a yard, is probably a group of trees. And the farther you step back, the more trees you see at one time. And so if you keep walking back, you'll probably see a, a large group of trees, maybe a few hundred of forest. And so that's how we're going to kind of look at Exodus 32. We're going to step back and look at it in context of, um, of how it fits in the book of Exodus. And then next week, we're going to look at primarily verses 30 through 35, and we're going to look at individual trees that help make up the chapter and how it compares. So today we're just going to take a broad-brush look and see what principles apply to our ownership in relationship to God and His people. So when are looking at the, at the forest, the big picture of Exodus 32. We have to step back and say, okay, what is happening in the book of Exodus? In the book of Exodus, uh, we see the, the Exodus out of Israel Uh, Out of Egypt, in the the early chapters, uh, we see the 10 plagues, and we see the people finally leave Egypt, around uh, chapters 14 and 15. In chapters 20 uh, through 24, we see God giving the commandments to the people of Israel. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. And one of the important passages uh, that you could turn there if you like, or or I'll read is Exodus 20, verses 18 through 23. And it says this, It says, you speak to us, and we will listen. They said to Moses, this is the people of Israel. But they said, don't let God speak to us, or we will die. Verse 20, Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you, that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord told Moses, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You must not make any gods of silver to rival me. You must not make any gods of gold for yourself. Now we see as God has continued to give the law and is developing the covenant within Israel the Israelites have a certain response to God. And that you can find in Exodus 24, verse 3. If you turn there, it says, Moses came and told the people all the commands that the Lord and all the ordinances. So the 10 commandments were given orally at this time. And what is the response of the people? It says, and the people responded with a single voice. Does anybody have that that could read that? The people responded in a single voice and said, 24, 3? Everything that the Lord has said, we will do. So they heard all the commandments, all the ordinances of God in order to, to worship Him and to obey Him. And so they are in complete verbal agreement of God. God, this is what you have told us to do. We are on board. We're ready to go. We are your servants. Exodus 32 begins to take a huge nosedive. As we've seen in, uh, also in chapter 24, we see that Moses is again going up to Mount Sinai. This Before he had, he had heard the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, brought them to Israel, professed them, they gave that, uh, that response as Travis read, and then Moses again goes up to Mount Sinai. This time it's to get the, the written word of the Ten Commandments, to put it on stone, to bring it back to the people. And that's the context of chapter 32. So we read in chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Here we see the setting and the sin of Israel. It reads this. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered together around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Moses, or Aaron replied to them. Aaron said, take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. What? <laughs> yeah, as, we were, as we were reminded in Exodus uh, twenty-four twelve, Moses goes up on the mountain uh, to gather the written word, of God. And his instructions were to the people to remain and to follow the commandments of God. What were the very first two commandments in Exodus 20? Exodus 20, verses 1 through 4, or through um, 6. Then God spoke all these words I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land. Of Egypt. If we stop there, 32 1, who brought the people out of Egypt, according to the Israelites? Moses. Moses. And in chapter 20, verse 1, who brought them out? God. Keep note of that. Again, 20, verse 1. Then God said to these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Verse 3, do not have any other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or in the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them uh, or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their father's sins through the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's interesting to note that in the very first verse of Exodus 32, that the Israelites are not seeking to necessarily replace God, but they just want to replace Moses. And it's almost as though Moses... Uh, demonstrated who God was to the Israelites. As we read in, um, in chapter uh, 21 and, and 24, the, the people were afraid of God. And so they said, Moses, you know, don't let God speak to us or he'll kill us. And so Moses was, it, it's, it's very pictorial. So Moses is a mediator between God and man. And it's consistent in this passage. Moses is speaking for the people. But without Moses who are they to believe in? Well they had every right to believe in God but they chose not to. So their plan is to replace Moses. And as we just read in the in the first two commandments what commandment are they breaking? The first one have no other gods or make have no other idols. Really both. Both commandments. And I would say the sin of Israel in this, in this narrative begins at verse 1. But it goes on. We see the image and the sacrifice to sin in verses 2, in verses 3 through 7. So Aaron, who's in full agreement uh, with, with what the people want to do, uh, according to the text from what we know, he says, so all the people took their gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, this is your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? Verse 5, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before and then he made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat, drink, and they got up to play. You see, Aaron took their rings. The first thing that he did is is he commanded them to get the rings from their wives, their children, uh, and their children bring them to him. And he took these rings, probably the ones that they had gotten from Egypt. Uh, So so the Egyptians, who worshipped many gods, um, in in the Exodus, God commanded the people to ask their neighbors for gold. They received that gold, and this is probably their Egyptian gold that they are making, much similar to an Egyptian god. And it says they gave it to Aaron, who made it, who fashioned it, or or the term can be squeezed together uh, something that resembled a cow. But the statement I find fascinating is this: is that they make this calf, and then what is their exclamation about this calf? That they make, that the calf brought them out of Egypt. Now, if you were any Israelite sitting there, you would know clearly that this image that was just man made had no control over what happened just a few short months earlier. And so, how could God's people get so far off track so fast? And I guess my answer to that is because uh, is, is when we leave the ownership of God, that we begin to leave his obedience. When we move away from God and his, and his teaching, when we just sit idle, then we begin to forget what God has commanded us to do. And so we walk away from his teaching, we walk away from his commandments. And we begin to put God on the side, begin to replace God. God. So clearly there is blatant sin on the people of Israel and Aaron. There is no questioning, no convincing, no withholding. When we live in a pagan culture for so long, as the people of Israel did, a godlike attitude or worship of the triune God is not just going to happen overnight. And so for, for the 400 years that, they're, that, they're, uh, that the generations before them and their fathers had lived in Egypt they became accustomed to their culture, and they lived in that environment. So turning turning a paradigm shift and focusing on Yahweh, the only true God, is not going to happen like that. And so their instinct, when times are slow and they're bored, is to resort back to what they grew up in. And yet their sin became clearly a blatant sin before God, clearly a defiant against the first two commandments. So what happens next? Look with me at verses 15 through 28. Actually, verses 7 through 14. God's anger is now provoked by the people of Israel. He says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for the people you brought up to the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly made for themselves an image of a calf, They have bowed down to it, uh, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, bow down to it, sacrifice to it, and said, Israel, this is your God who brought you from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. They are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." So from the Lord's perspective, who brought them from the land of Egypt? Moses, right? And whose people are they? He says, uh, the Lord says they're your people. It's almost as though God is is distancing distancing himself from his own people because of their own sin, their own rebelliousness, because they're stiff-necked before the Lord. How does Moses respond? But Moses interceded with the Lord, uh, his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? You brought them out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a strong hand. Why, what will the Egyptians say? He brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your great anger and relent concerning the disaster planned for your people. Verse 13, remember Your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, you swore to them by your very self and declared, I will make your offering as numerous as the stars of the sky, and will give your offering all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. What's Moses' reasoning for God saving his people? Is it because Israel is so good and they've been so faithful to God in the past that God should should spare them? No. No, it's not. God's reason, for, or Moses' reason for why God should say this is because, hey, what are the Egyptians going to say? You know, we, we, we spend so much time getting this, the, you know, your people out of bondage, out of slavery to the Egyptians, and they're just going to laugh at us now because you took them all out, and only one is left. But not only that is his argument out of, um, you know, what other people, what the Egyptians would say, but also God's original promise to the forefathers abraham isaac and jacob moses is saying why why start over god uh, i mean you you already in place you've already promised to abraham isaac and jacob that your people would be as numerous as the stars won't you relent we see god's response in verse 14 so the lord relented concerning disaster that he said he would bring upon his people in, verses 32, uh, in chapter 32, 15 through 28, we see Moses, his rebuke of the people of Israel and the punishment he's given. Moses comes back down the mountain. And upon seeing the, uh, and hearing the, the songs and the noise, he breaks the Ten Commandments. And he comes upon the people and he, and he sees the destruction, the wickedness of, of their sin. And he takes the calf that they had made, whether it was small or big, and he, he grinds it up and puts it in the river and makes the Israelites drink it. But not only that, he, he commands that those who are for the Lord to come towards him. And so this could be the ones that, that never uh, followed and, and worshipped the calf, or it could be those at that moment who were uh, of, of self-control, had focus, and were eagerly desiring to worship God Within that moment, and he had them come forward. And what does he tell them to do in the next few verses? As he saw that they were out of control, verse 25, uh, he stood at the camp's entrance and says, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. He told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side, go back and forth throughout the camp, from entrance to entrance. And each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 men died that day among the people. What a disaster! What a disaster. You see, the cost of devotion is never cheap. We say, how could, how could God command such, a, such a, uh, an inhumane act? Or how, or how could Moses you know, command the Levites to do such a thing? But in retrospect, if we ask, well, how great is the holiness of God that He would allow sin to exist and to continue in their midst? As I was studying this passage, the, the context of the, the early church came to mind in the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, who blatantly sought to, to, um, to test the Holy Spirit. Did they get, get away with it? No, no, they didn't. Both were struck dead at two different times for lying, not just to Peter, but to the Holy Spirit. And so it's almost as though as, that as God is, is building up his people within the Old Testament, that, that the very first two commandments, have no other gods before me or have no other gods besides me and have no other idols, are to demonstrate that, that God is only to be worshipped amongst his people, that he is to be their entire focus and anything else uh, besides that or before him is seeking to replace God. And so even as, as God offers the, uh, the commandment to, to slay those who are, are so close to the brothers and sisters, it's demonstrating his own holiness in that moment. And while it might be tough for us to think that, that God would, would offer such a command for his own people, it's also good for us to think that it's his own holiness at work in dividing his people and purifying his people. And that's why we come to verse 29. Verse 29. Afterwards, Moses said this, Today you have been dedicated to the Lord since each man went against his son and his brother. Therefore, you have brought a blessing on yourselves today. Even in the midst of death, God is offering a blessing through Moses to these faithful people, to the Levites. The result is obedience amongst a a few, a few people. You see, the the ownership of Israel, at least in the beginning of Exodus 32, is not God. God. You see, the, the people are willing to replace their mediator, to replace Moses, they're willing to replace God for, for a calf, for an idol, a man made object. And yet the Levites, they recognize ownership. Who is their owner? It's God, it's Yahweh. And upon their their, their ownership of God, they're willing to obey him at all costs, no matter what it takes. And so for us today, I think that we we can come to conclude that ownership determines obedience. As God is is possessing us, that God owns us, it turns our hearts around to seek to obey him for the believer. You see, what does ownership of sin look like? I think we have a clear example here. I think we see it in the, the narrative of Cain, when, when he has, has killed his brother and, and God says, be careful, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is right there. In the context of Lot, we talked about, if you look in chapter, chapter 12, it says Lot moved where? It said it, he moved near Sodom. The very next chapter, where is Lot? In Sodom. It only takes a few verses for people to go, oh, I'm near sin, and then to be in sin. And so for the, for the people of Israel, in, in chapter 20 through, through 31, yes, Lord, we are your servants. Everything you've commanded, we will do. Chapter 32, verse 1, we want to replace God with this calf. With this idol. Because we don't want to listen to the, to the authority, the commands of God. And yet we'd rather be stiff-necked and obey something we've made with our hands. You see, ownership determines obedience. You see, sin also demonstrates ownership. For an alcoholic, they never start with 25 drinks. It's just one, and that's just to to remove the stress of life, and so one is is comfortable for them for a few weeks, and then they realize, I don't get that same reaction, so I'll try two, and then that works for two weeks, and they go to four, and then another week later it's eight, and then 16, so on, and so on. And that, begins to, what, what, and that begins to take control of their lives. When they thought, I have control over this, it ends up controlling them. You see, sin demonstrates ownership. And we are slaves to sin. But for the response of the Christian, it's that the Christian is possessed by God. And we talk about God if he's our owner. Uh, there's, there's three verses in the beginning of Exodus in the Old Testament that help us kind of picture what does it look like for God to be our owner? Exodus 19, 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all peoples, for the earth is mine. God's possession. Isaiah 43, 1. Now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, I I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Leviticus 20, 26. You are to be holy to me because I, Yahweh, am holy. I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. There are three applications to how we can be owned, possessed by God. The first is is how do we live as though we are God's possession it's be reminded that you and I are sons and daughters of God not slaves we are sons and daughters of God for the Israelites they were slaves in Egypt upon converting and knowing their covenant with God they became sons and daughters recognizing their their possession the relationship that God has with his people a helpful passage To help remind us to where we are today is is Galatians 3, 27 through 4, 7. It says, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that as long as you are heirs, uh, that the child is an heir. He differs no way from a slave, although he is the owner. Of everything, Instead, he is under guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. In the same way, also, when we are children, we're in slavery under the elementary forces of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has set his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, father so you are no longer a slave but a son though or then as an heir through God you and I today we're not in slavery if you are a believer in Jesus Christ but you and I are sons and daughters of God and we are called heirs so today if you're struggling with saying who is who is my boss who is my owner for a believer it's God for non believers it's, it's sin. So Tate, if you're willing, I would invite you to become a child of God. Be owned by Him. Because obedience without God is just legalism or liberalism. But the obedience with God is liberty. So ownership Defines, describes obedience. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we realize that it is your holiness, your justice, your mercy, your love, grace, and faithfulness that bind our hearts. To you. It's not because we are good, but because you are good. Father, we thank you for the Redeemer, the Creator, Jesus Christ. Because of Him, we are saved. We are redeemed from hell, from the, the burden, the hold of sin, and we are free in Christ. And Holy Spirit, is because you are working within us that we can run to the Father because He calls us His. God, I thank you for each and every person in here. May we realize your grace in times of doubt. May we realize your grace in times of struggle. May we realize your grace in times of hurt, in times of need. And we'd be reminded that when times are tough, not to turn to anything that replaces you or comes before you, but to turn to you, Lord God, and seek to obey your commandments because we are owned and loved and cherished by you. It's your name that I pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Go in peace.